Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for the listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Yasmin Al-Bastaki from the Emirates Diplomatic Academy. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Eve Trout-Powell, the author of Tell This in My Memory, Stories of Enslavement from Egypt, Sudan, and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it is a study of slavery, liberation, and rem- remembrance between the 19th and 21st century. Uh, Dr. Eve Trout-Powell is a, teaches the history of the modern Middle East and history of slavery in the Nile Valley and the Ottoman Empire. As a cultural historian, she emphasizes the, impo- uh, the exploration of literature and film in her courses. Uh, uh, Dr. Trout-Powell received her BA, MA, and PhD from Harvard University. Um, she taught for 10 years at the University of Georgia before coming to Penn, uh, Penn State University. She has received fellowships from the American Research Center in Egypt and the Social Science Research Council and has been a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton and at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. In 2003, she was named a MacArthur Foundation Fellow. Um, so, uh, Dr. Eve, would you uh, like to start off by saying a few words about yourself, um, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study? Okay, sure. Um, first of all, thank you so much, Yasmin Abataki, for inviting me um, to be a part of this of this podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, my book is not so new, so it's very nice that you're paying attention to it, and I'm quite honored. Um, I do want to let you and your listeners know that I am not a professor at Penn State University. I'm a professor at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and people make that mistake all the time. Um, um, But um, um, I grew up in New York City and um, had no experience of the Middle East, really, until after I graduated from Harvard in, um, in the early 1980s, and I went uh, to Cairo, sight unseen for um, an internship, a year-long internship at the American University in Cairo. And it's from my experience that first year in Egypt when I decided that whatever I did with my life, um, it was going to have to get me back to Egypt on a regular basis. So I was generally interested in Middle Eastern history and current events, and um, I was generally interested sort of in, in the fact that I knew nothing about this wonderful place and that it wasn't a requirement in our history um, um, courses. So, but my my interest in race and constructions of race in the Nile Valley um, in Egypt and Sudan really came from observing the experiences of Sudanese friends of mine um, in the early 
Well, through the 1980s until now. Right. Um, did you have any mentor, any influential mentors coming into this? Um, actually, it took a while for, um, I had mentors among my Sudanese friends who were really helpful in thinking about this. Um, and I had really great support um, from um, the folks at the American Research Center in Egypt and from um, professors at AUC, and, um, and I had a lot of help. Um, in the United States, In the when I eventually did go into graduate school, um, I would say that my idea of exploring race was less welcomed, um, and okay. that people thought that this was not something that applied um, to the Middle East. Um, um, and that's not to say that there were not Egyptians, uh, who felt that way as well. Um, I have not met any Sudanese scholars or, or friends who ever discouraged me in the same way that I was discouraged um, at Harvard. Um, but I will say I do have to name two two uh, mentors at Harvard: Zach Lockman, who is now at NYU, and Roger Owen, um, who passed away uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, became very very helpful um, in my in my struggle and in my studies. Um, and then when I got to Georgia, um, yes, I had, there was a different approach. I was in a history department. I was not in a Middle East studies department. And that's when I got a great deal of support from my peers and my colleagues. Mm, that's great. Um, so how does the idea for the book develop? What was uh, the research process like? Well, the idea for the book <clears throat> came from um, experiences I had with uh, Dinka friends in Cairo, who by the by say ninety the middle of the nineteen nineties, their status in Egypt had become very very difficult. And um, they were constantly facing experiences on the streets of Cairo being called Abid or slave or, you know, dark-skinned mm -hmm. slave. Um, but it also had to do with these churches all around Cairo that had pictures of a saint on their doors. And this picture, it was a picture of, of uh, at the time, um, 1992, when I was first introduced to her, she was not yet a saint. She, she was. Uh, this was Josephine Bachita, who was a Sudanese slave in the 19th century, who eventually was sold from Khartoum to an Italian master, and she became a nun. and And um, she died in 1947, and she was. Uh, canonized in 2000. And her portrait or her poster on the, on the doorways of certain churches meant that these were sanctuaries for refugees. And I became very interested in this community of people 
most of them domestic workers who joined in the name of of Bahita. And so originally this book was going to be just about Bahita and just about her experience as a slave and what she suffered and what she who she illuminated and 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 but when I was at Radcliffe, the Institute for Advanced Study there, um, it became clear mm-hmm. to me, with the help of some of my colleagues, that Bahita herself uh, was an important subject, but it was very easy to devolve into hagiography. And of course, she's a saint and, 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 and well earned her sainthood. Um, but that to really get at the experience of slavery, I had to put the formerly enslaved like Josephine Bajita into dialogue with slave owners because it was often slave owners who were writing um, in Arabic or in Turkish or in English. Most of the formerly enslaved in, in the Nile Valley and the Ottoman Empire didn't have access, weren't fluent in these languages and certainly, or were fluent but not writing fluent. So many of their stories are stories that they told to their owners and their owners in the late 19th century and in the early 20th century, very famous nationalists, all of them, um, um, revealed a great deal. And so the book is about a dialogue between owners and the owned and, and what emerges out of those dialogues. Do we learn about how slaves and slave trade fit into constructions of race at a very important time in the Ottoman Empire and in the Nile Valley. Did you find the writing process to be particularly difficult by bringing these two narratives together? It got a lot better when I brought them into dialogue together. It was, um, it, it, it was you know, the, the Bahita herself, um, and she's one right. chapter of um, she had a, a wonderful story that has been filmed, that has been published, but it's not in her words. She told it to a sister nun. Um, and so trying to figure out how these lives impacted others, it really helped open up a great deal when I also looked at famous uh, writers who owned slaves like Hoda Sha'arawi um, in Egypt or um, Babikar Bedri in Sudan or Halide Adib Adivar in the late Ottoman and then early Turkish Republic. You know, it just opened up a great deal. Um, and through this, I also found in some archives in Rome that there were former slaves who, through the Catholic Church, did gain fluency in these languages and were able to write their stories. And then it's all about how their stories were framed and how their stories were edited. So I was floundering quite a bit before I had the realization that if I opened it up to include uh, the voices of others, not just the enslaved, um, even though they were the focus of the book, that I would be able to tell a fuller story. Okay. Did you find it difficult trying to to really capture the authentic voices of the enslaved? Um, Because I think while reading your book, there were sections where you mentioned that it was kind of difficult to to really put forward their experience without with um, in relation to the people who enslaved them and what sort of them injecting their narratives into the enslaved narrative. 
Absolutely. It was very hard. And, um, um, it, it, it's, and I'm, I'm not sure that I succeeded. I think I was able to tell a story of lived experiences, but I can no, no way presume to, to present authentic voices unless they were, these were voices who were not translated, who, who were able to write, um, um, themselves. And there's, 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 uh, Salim C. Wilson and also um, the Catholic priest, um, Father Daniel, um, they could do that. Um, but even then, because of, because of the racial tenor of the times, um, just like in other, just like in other uh, environments like the United States, people didn't believe that black people could really talk or really write and, and often just disavowed the authenticity. So this, this question of whether or not one can capture the authentic voice haunts my book. Um, um, and it's part of the tragedy of, of, Finding slaves in archives, finding slaves in private archives, you know, f- how people remember them, um, right. whether those memories are always true. And we all know that memory can be tricky. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. no, this is this remains a challenge. Mm-hmm, definitely. So how does the book connect or depart from your previous work? Oh, this <laughs> this book. um, um my first book, um, the A Different Shade of Colonialism, um, is right. all about how the British, how during a, f- a interesting period of history between 1881 and 1885, Egypt and Egyptians find themselves uh, losing their what I call colony, and I believe it was a colony in Sudan, and then being just at the same time colonized by the British in 1882, and that this strange and important triangle of events uh, created in Egyptian nationalism an element of um, colonized colonizers and or colonized, yeah, and and I wanted to continue to explore that on a more individual basis. So you do see that some of the people that I wrote about in the in my first book, I wasn't finished with them yet. Um, so there was, because I realized right. in the second book how important they were to telling these stories and how important their memoirs are. Um, um, although there were some people, I had no idea in the first book um, what a fascinating uh, figure and writer Halideh Adib Adivar was. Um, she's not in the first book. Um, and uh, Hoda Sha'arawi is in the first book, but not the way she is in the second book, where I focus much more on her. And Babak Badri is sort of, his memoirs are such a masterpiece of, of historical right. thinking and his writing. And he's so, I think he's just, you know, there's an honesty there to me um, that mm-hmm. is so compelling. Um, um, so, yeah. So I would say it came it came out of that um, out of the, out of that first book. Did you feel like the first book helped kind of prepare you for the second book in the sense of how you wanted to write it? No. <laughs> well, no, not not at all. Not at first. <laughs> Not at first. Um, 
at, at first when I was really, I mean, for two years, I was convinced that I was just going to write about Bajita and it just became, it, it just, it, it wasn't flowing. It wasn't, you know, um, it wasn't working. And, and um, so then I had to go back to my first book and say, how did I manage this then? And, and there's a lot of dialogue between people in my first book. And, and that's what helped me. Um, so I should have been paying more attention to my first book, but, but it, it took <laughs> me a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, but eventually came together. Um, eventually came. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's turn to the book. Um, the book contains about six chapters in addition to the prologue and the e-prologue. So, um, maybe you could say a couple of words about that and, um, the organizational style, how it came about for you? Um, uh, sure. Or I, I can talk to you about the process. Um, you could try. I tried to keep the book. I, I tried to keep the book in a chronological order and I tried to write the chapters in a chronological order, but what really moved me and, um, and this I think is part of my prologue is what happened to Sudanese refugees in Mustafa Mahmoud Square in Cairo in 2005, the end of the year, when they were protesting and and the police came after months. And at first, the neighbors of this area in Mohandasin, um, and it's a huge business area in this neighborhood of Cairo, were very, very um, supportive of the refugees. And the refugees also received a great deal of support from the mosque. There's a huge mosque right there. But, you know, um, homeless, homeless camps tend to provoke impatience and, you know, municipalities and cities and governments are never sure how to handle homelessness and how to handle these kinds of protests. And it devolved into um, a forced deportation and the police used um, uh, hoses and hosed quite violently um, children and women and men. Um, there were all kinds of pictures in all kinds of papers about this, and it saddened me to my heart. And um, and that's what propelled what I hope is a voice in this book that is one of um, patience. Um, I hope that my voice reads as um, genuinely and deeply interested in the humanity of all the people involved but a serious and deep anger at, at, the, at how racism shapes lives mm. and, how, and how hard it is to struggle through that. Um, so that's what I hope, that's what I hope the book um, has done. Um, and then I went, um, pretty chronologically, um, I started, oh, I started with someone I had also started with in my earlier book, Ali Mubarak Pasha, who is one of the most fascinating figures in Egyptian history. And we really need a biography of him, um, because 
um, he, he, he situates himself in such interesting ways in his history of, of, of Egypt. And his own autobiography is sprinkled through this very long um, encyclopedic masterpiece that he wrote, um, El Chittat. And so, and in his, in this topography, um, as he's tearing down Cairo at the order of the Khadiv and getting ready to build up a, a new Cairo, um, he's telling histories and slaves figure throughout the histories. And it was fascinating. And what comes out of this also is how he, in the late um, 1880s, um, how he sees um, the lives and the impact and the influences of the enslaved um, um, and how he values, you know, and, he, and he's very black and white about it. There are black slaves and there are white slaves. And, and so I was fascinated to see this. And that's what, but that chapter took me, oh, that was so hard to write. And then I just tried to. Why um, was it so hard to write? Well, first of all, El <laughs> Chidot. <laughs> Um, is there are no paragraphs? Right? <laughs> so it's okay, a lot of dumb stuff, and you really have to train yourself for his rhythm of writing so that you know where you can see it. And it's fascinating, but it was just, it was very, and I doubted myself a lot. You know, I was like, he's really saying black and white in this way. Am I really understanding him the right way? Am I really seeing this? You know, but, but. And I wasn't able to translate it so that people who were not specialists in Middle East studies, it didn't make any sense. So I must have written this chapter about four or five times. Um, um, and, um, and then things got a little bit easier with the second chapter um, because it's so easily spelled out with Babika Bedri. Um, and then Salem C. Wilson, that was Salim C. Wilson. It was misspelled in the um, first edition of the book. Um, that too was, was hard because I felt like I had to fight against the suspicion about the truth of his story, um, and how gratifying it was, you know, to find that there are, are anthropologists who actually rely on him completely. Um, mm -hmm. um, Hoda and Halliday, I enjoyed writing immensely. Um, I enjoyed comparing the works of these two women. Um, Hoda Sha'arawi's own personal relationship to slavery, to me, is, a, is still a mystery um, in terms of her mom. Um, and Halliday, Halliday Adib Adivar, wrote her memoirs first in English um, because she was exiled from Turkey at the time. And she wrote it while she was teaching um, at Columbia University. And so she was living in Harlem um, during the Harlem Renaissance and reflecting on, on you know, the slaves that she had owned. And if the, if this woman were alive today, I would so love to talk to her about what were you thinking? What did you see? You know, how did Harlem relate to Istanbul? You know, like just just that. And then, and then the rest of the book got easier and easier. And the easiest chapter to write was the one about Bajita. <laughs> and so okay. what ended up being 
hard as its own book was the easiest chapter to write. And I feel like I wrote that one in a trance and, and in a couple of days. Yeah. Um, what did you hope, how do you hope people will read your book? Oh, what a wonderful question. Um, I hope, I hope that, you know, when I was writing this book, I was now in both the Africana Studies program. Now it's now a department at Penn and, um, right. and the history department. But, you know, I have always, um, I think I've always written my books for a Middle East Studies um, group. This was the first time or a Middle East Studies audience. Um, right. This is the first time I felt like I was expanding on that um, and trying mm-hmm. to reach a broader audience. Um, and I just feel that the study of slavery has become so fascinating within Middle East Studies, and people are so much more open to it now than they were when I first began. Um and I felt, I hope people see, I hope it complicates for people the lives of very famous nationalist historical figures that they know and introduces them to figures uh, that they don't know. Um, and that the relationship between those who owned slaves and those who were enslaved can be very, very complicated. Um, and I also hope that readers of this book will think about race, um, will really think about race and think about how it's affected their own lives, you know, how it might have structured their own um, um, prospects, you know, what it means to sort of live in a world, and we all live in a world whose economies are based on enslavement. You mentioned at the beginning that you were not met with a lot of um, support when you were first, uh, you know, starting out to write this book. Do you feel like now that it's been out and um, sort of, do you feel like it's become easier to explore these topics, the topic of slavery in the Middle East? This book was well received. It was my first book. It was the book that was my dissertation. Yeah. And, um, oh, I got yelled at in so many places. Um, and you know, I am African American and, and, um, people sometimes often actually would challenge me and say, don't you dare bring your construction of race to us. Um, what happens in America doesn't translate here. And, um, you know, and I, I was deeply offended, first of all, because, you know, I was figuring out my own construction of race and you can't just look at me right. and assume that you know what I'm thinking. You know, um, we're all very complicated in, in our approach to our own origins and in our approach to our racial identities. Um, but it was also um, a criticism that I think made me go deeper um, in then really listening to people and asking them, okay, well then what would you call this and, and explain this to me and show me this. And, you know, and it was funny in Egypt, some of my, some of my older professors, um, when I was on the, um, Center for Arabic Studies Abroad, for instance, when I was working with professors at Cairo University, would say things like, no, it's not the same here. And then they'd call me up later and say, but I do remember my family. There was somebody 
she was, you know, our aunt, you know, um, our, our, but she wasn't, she never married and she, and they would start to think about, you know, in their, um, in their own personal histories, who these figures were, who these domestic workers were. And that, that was, that was so generous and kind of people to share that with me. Um, and but also there is a legacy of slavery in Egypt and in the late Ottoman Empire and in, in which there were racial divisions and those divisions are all over the place still. And, um, and there's a whole vocabulary about it. And you can still see it. Um, you know, this spring, there was an uh, outbreak, if you will, of blackface performance all over the Middle East and North Africa. Um, um, that was hugely, um, I don't even think people knew what they, what they were doing by, by performing a blackface, or maybe they did. Yeah. I'm not sure in all instances. Um, and I was in Cairo with my oldest son in October, and um, I watched a lot of comedies on um, uh, the channel El Nil, and um, man, every other movie had someone in blackface. And these were not old films, you know. So I do still think, particularly through the study of blackface, um, um, that, <laughs> you know, there's a way to explore um, um, racism in a way that's not always American. Hmm. Was that, was the criticism at the beginning that you, you were getting, you know, about bringing in your own race into it, um, the, uh, of your own experience as an African-American into sort of the discussion, did it really, um, did it make you sort of more careful in how you phrased or how you, you wrote the chapter per se, the chapters per se? In my earlier work, yes. And my graduates, yeah. my graduate students, some of them think I got too soft in my second book. <laughs> okay. I wrote, no, I, I think there's an angrier tone in my first book. Um, okay. Um, and um, um, but so my, I asked a, a, a seminar, a grad seminar I taught a year uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, I was like, "So what do you think of this book?" And and they told me <laughs> they, they liked the book, um, but they were like, "Well, you know, Eve, you've, you've, you're not you're you're not a revolutionary anymore." And I was like, "Oh." <laughs> so I'm trying to cover that voice a little bit in my next book. <laughs> well, um, so what did you, in terms of impact, what did you, what would you like it to have? What would you have liked it to have? Uh, I think the book, I think this book has had a very different impact than my first book. I think this, this book is, um, I think I think the power of narrative um, mm -hmm. is really important, and I really try to respect how to structure a story um, mm -hmm. in a way that would invite people, whether they agree with me or not, um, to really think about it. And and I my sense is that it has done that. Um, at least I hope it's done that. Um, and again, as I said earlier, I think it's a book with a broader audience. 
um, than my than my first book. Um, and well, I also what discussion. Did, go ahead. Go ahead. You go ahead. Oh no, I was uh, going to ask. Um, what discussions were you hoping to spark with it? I was hoping to to spark more discussions about slavery in the Middle East. This book has has firmly put me into um, slavery studies, and it's opened up a new world for me. Um, I mean, I've always been interested in it, but there is definitely a fascinating. Um, um, I think I'm part of the older generation of it, but of of scholars who work on the Middle East and North Africa and Africa, scholars like Mike Gomez um, at NYU, uh, Shukil Hamel at Arizona State, um, uh, different scholars who have, uh, uh, Ahmed Hilal um, in Egypt, um, um, who have really started building on on what is the history of slavery in the Middle East. Um, this was done in Ottoman studies by Hakan Erdem um, and also Ehud Toledano. Um, but I think more and more people from within the region are focusing on, on the history of slavery. And I think that's really important. And I'm very, very, very proud to be a part of that discussion now. Oh, that's great. Um, so before we move on to, uh, the, our last traditional question, could you please read a paragraph from your book? Is there a, a section that you feel that you would like to share? Oh, my. Um, <laughs> yeah, I should have thought of that. Um, I'm sorry. That's my cat editing. Um, no, that's all right. <laughs> Let's see. You know what? I think I would just like to go to the beginning. If um, yeah. Um. Okay, I, I'd like to go to the very beginning. I'm. 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 Um. The, uh, the very first pages in the prologue. Um. I read a word with a long history. Um. And. Okay, and I'm going to start um, with page two, and um, um, and it's um, the paragraph. It starts: An Egyptian columnist for El Masri Aliyom echoed the indignation of Gamal Nkrumah, who is an Egyptian uh, journalist, in an opinion piece published several years later, in which he described watching a young Egyptian woman harass a Southern Sudanese woman while riding on the Cairo metro. The reporter, Mona El-Tahawi, intervened only to have the Egyptian girl and her mother berate her and tell her it was none of her business. The young Sudanese woman thanked her. El-Tahawi responded in her article, I could only imagine other times she'd been abused publicly. We are a racist people in Egypt and we are in deep denial about it. Looking back over recent history, she continued, what else about race, What else but racism on December 30th, 2005 allowed hundreds of riot policemen to storm through a makeshift camp in central Cairo to clear it of 2,500 Sudanese refugees, trampling or beating to death 28 people, among them women and children. And then the next page begins, many Sudanese 
refugees would welcome the sensitivity of Nkrumah and Netahawi, but may have wondered, as I did reading these accounts, why none of these reporters repeated the exact insults hurled at refugees on Cairo streets. As I learned from interviews with Sudanese refugees, even before the Mohandasin incident, the most painful epithet was Abid, the Arabic word for slave, a word intended for darker-skinned people of African descent. I think the silence around this word, even between the most caring of observers, reflects a larger silence about the legacy of slavery that connects Egyptian history to Sudanese history. When the Egyptian government spokesman, Mr. Radi, expressed his bafflement about what the Sudanese refugees were fighting for, he also disclosed a lack of awareness about how the southern Sudanese are connected, painfully, to Egyptian society. You know, thank you for reading that passage. Um, I guess a question I would like to ask, um, because you have visited Egypt quite often. Um, do you see... <laughs> So, sorry, I've lived there too. You have lived there, yes. Okay. So, what was your so how you know with writing this book and kind of you know reading these historical accounts and then um, sort of li living in you know a modern Egypt? Did you feel like you saw the remnants of it in every in uh, in your in, you know while living there? You know, in the daily experiences that maybe perhaps would have. Um, not been so clear to people, would have not been so clear, clearly defined, you know, within the, the fold of um, the society living there because it was just viewed as something normal and you kind of coming in from the outside and looking through um, with that historical background. Um, how did you feel that that kind of translated for you? Yes, I mean, that is a terrific question. I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, there are many wealthy Sudanese in Egypt, many. Mm -hmm. and, um, right. and certainly we know that, for instance, the Mahdi family um, um, fled to Egypt when they couldn't be in Sudan anymore. And I worked with many members of, these were some of the, they were so generous with me. And, um, and you know, and they have very good connections with, with elites within Egyptian society, with journalists, within, you know, they, I mean, they're, they are really up there. And, and at least at the time I was writing my book, this was the case. And, um, and, you know, they would tell their Egyptian friends, uh, as I would be there with my, my late husband, and they would say, you know, you all, once we put on a suit and a rich, you don't call us Abid anymore. But the minute <laughs> we're, you know, carrying a garbage can or something like that, or carrying a bucket. Um, and that was really interesting. But what's even more important is that when I told some of my less wealthy uh, Sudanese friends who are from the South, from Juba, um, from Ye, from other places, they were like, why would you go work with these slave owners? So I, I'm saying this mm. to say that it is such a complicated conversation between these now three countries. Um, um, mm. Because... So, for instance, my cousin came 
my cousin came and, and my, my, a lot of my family's in Detroit. My cousin came to visit and we went to one of the members of the Mahdi's family because they, we become very good friends at that point. And some of these members are dark skinned and my cousin is also dark skinned. And he was like, well, do you call yourself black? And they were like, look, this is some American thing. We don't even get into that. And he was shocked. And, you know, and so there's that American surprise and looking at people you know, who, who we consider very dark skinned, you know, who are like, I'm not dark skinned or I'm dark skinned, but I'm Arab. And so, yes, I think that that's where I had a lot to learn. I had a lot to learn. Um, but I think, and I think that I was looking at it. I had to learn that what my sense of color was, was very different than what other people's were in the, in, in, in the cities of the Nile Valley. Very, very different. Um, you know, um, but I still think that my sensitivity to the word Abid and seeing how friends of mine would be deeply, deeply insulted by it um, enabled me to, to connect it to the N-word it's the n-word doesn't mean formally enslaved but in many ways it is for the descendants of the enslaved who've kind of seized the word and taken it for themselves um and i also think i'm not the first to have noticed this that there is a long trajectory of african and african-american intellectuals who have been very curious about the Nile Valley um, and who have also brought their questions about race um, to, to uh, Zionism, for example, or to mm-hmm. nationalism. I'm thinking about W.E.B. Du Bois and, and many, many others. Um, and so, yes, I, 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 I do think being an outsider helped and hurt mm-hmm. but but was important but was important yeah um did you feel that the word do you feel or do you perceive the word abd or abid would be sort of um and maybe this is me looking at it with a western lens but would it do you think it would be taken back the same way the word the n-word has been sort of utilized by african-americans you know as a power statement yeah uh um you know, I, I'm so curious about this. I, I really am um, because I'm being, and I think this is part of what has been a good impact for personally for me of tell this in my memory, is that people are reaching out to me from all over the Middle East, um, um, right. from Turkey, communities of Afro-Turks, um, um, from communities in Iraq who are now calling themselves Afro-Iraqis, um from um saudi students um who are raising questions about race i i now these are these are you know not people who are are um sending out rap videos at this point um and i know i i so i don't know but it would be so interesting to see um, um and for me that would mean a greater exploration of videos and music because um, that's where I think this takes place. Um, Which is always fun. It, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> exactly. And I, what I'm hoping, I'm hoping in the in the spring, I'm teaching a new course on um, blackface um, in the Middle East or global blackface um, because blackface is everywhere, and um, right. and sort of looking at when it's when these words are are reappropriated um, and when they're just outright mm-hmm. rejected. Um, but yeah, I am, I'm, I'm, you know, I did not experience that with my friends, but, you know, um, there is a, there is a movie, a video called Slingshot Hip Hop. It's about, uh, Gaza, Palestinian, young Palestinians in Gaza, and then some in the West Bank who are rapping, rapping very beautifully. And Tupac Shakur is really a big part of their rap training. and. and you see these young Palestinian kids using the N word, and I was at a big seminar about it, and I was like, "No, that doesn't work." <laughs> and they were, some of, you know, it's it's. I think this would be a wonderful thing to study. Definitely, yeah. Well, um, you've taken up a lot of your time. Um, but I guess I'm going to close. I could talk to you all day, to be honest. Um, Thank you. um so uh i guess to close off is what are you working on now what are some current projects future projects or what do you hope to work on um i'm working right now on a book about the visual the visual culture of slavery um in the middle east and so i'm looking um at photography and the use of photography to depict slaves um um, um, throughout the same time period, um, through the middle of the 19th century to the first quarter of the 20th century. And, um, and this comes out of the editor for Tell Us in My Memory, Kate Wall, um, at Stanford, saying that a chapter I have where I really wanted to explore photographs, she thought that would be better in another book. So that was the impetus for this next book. Right. But I've gotten I've gotten deeply into the paintings of of Orientalists and sort of the trade in images of slaves. Um, And I'm deep, deep, deep into this right now. And um, and that's so that's what I'm working on at this point and really enjoying it. Yeah, well, it sounds really interesting. I can't wait to get my hands on it. Um, No. Okay, that would be great. Um, So thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explore Tell This in My Memory, Stories of Enslavement from Egypt, Sudan, and the Ottoman Empire, uh, which is a study of slavery, liberation, and remembrance between the 19th and 21st century. This is your host, Yasmin Basteki. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in Indian Ocean World. (laughs) 